Welcome to Animal Spirits, the podcast that takes a completely different look at markets and investing. Hosted by Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson, two guys who study the markets as a passion and invest for all the right reasons. Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson work for Ritholtz Wealth Management. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben or any podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to Animal Spirits with Michael and Ben. There was an article, I think from last week in Barron's, and the title is, Ray Dalio says the next financial crisis could be even worse than the last one. And I read the post and maybe I missed it. I was perhaps reading too quickly, but I didn't see anything in there that uh, reflected what the title suggested. Did you read this piece? I'm not going to lie. I skimmed it, but that's because I was so busy also skimming Dalio's new book, which I I took him for the team here. It's called A Template for Understanding Big Debt Crises. And so that's why he was doing out in the news and by the way, isn't it kind of funny that even like one of the most well-known hedge fund managers in the world has to go through this PR stuff and pimp his book out there? Wow, you are really firing shots. This is unlike you. Oh, that was a shot? No, I was just saying. It's kind of funny. You'd think people would just kind of come to it and find it because of his name. So l- let me... Well, yeah, so that's a good point. But let me ask you a question. Maybe they were... Maybe this title reflected what was in the book. Is that accurate? That's possible because it, it just went through case studies of every historical huge debt issue of the past. They looked at Japan. They looked at the hyperinflation in Germany. He looked at the US in the Great Depression in the 1937-38. And there were a lot of graphs. I mean, I would say don't read this unless you're a huge economic nerd who really loves to dig into this stuff. But so it's going to be more... It's people who are really, really interested in learning. And it's a good history lesson, I suppose. But his main point is that these sort of things happen on a regular... Not on a regular basis they all kind of look the same, is is what he's trying to get across. So he's seen this movie before. Yes, and he knows how it ends. But his other big point is, like, if you look at these throughout history, they're all trumped by productivity gains. And so in the end of the day, it ends up being kind of a wash, and these don't really matter that much, except for people in the moment. Well, you wrote a piece last week about not taking asset allocation advice from billionaires. And I was thinking about this. I don't think that you were suggesting that advice from billionaires is worthless. I think you were making the point that when people see a Jamie Dimon say, don't own treasuries, or a Ray Dalio talk about gold, they think that they are talking to them. When in reality, somebody with billions and billions of dollars could just have much, 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 much different financial goals than you do. Correct. So my point is, don't take advice from anyone unless you overlay context with it. You like don't take advice from us, whatever we say, unless you use like situational awareness and, you know, provide it under your own circumstances. So that's that was the point. And a lot of people are like, are you saying I shouldn't put ninety percent of my portfolio in the S P and ten percent in cash like Warren Buffett said? And I'm like, well, <laughs> yeah, kind of. Just don't listen to what any, what any of them say unless it pertains to you. I guess the point is that nobody cares about what we say, but when people when billionaires do give financial advice, people listen. And they tend to put more emphasis on words coming from a billionaire's mouth. But Ray Dalio, for instance, is worth 18-something billion dollars. He could lose 1% every single day for the next year and still have $400 million. Wow. That's not bad. So all he has to do to lose 1% a day is to join a trading system on Twitter. Right? <laughs> all right. So sticking with this debt theme, Bloomberg Opinion wrote a piece titled, $250 trillion in Debt. The world's post-Lehman legacy. 
All right, I guess I should take it from here. <laughs> so one of the things that they show, and this is this is not necessarily a chart climb. It's just these are gigantic numbers, and when you see the y-axis stretched out like this, it, it, it's just uh, that much more scary, which we'll link to in the show notes. But they say that $173 trillion at the time of the 2000 financial crisis to $250 trillion a decade after Lehman Brothers collapsed. And they're talking about global debt. Now, that is a huge amount of money. So there's no way to like dampen this. However, I'll try my best. 173 to 250 over a decade is 3.75% a year in growth. And if we assume, and I'm literally making this up, I have, you know, whatever. If we assume that, that this 250 trillion is attached, uh, 3% interest, that's seven and a half trillion dollars a year, which is, again, a, a giant number. But keep in mind that there's another side of, of this. And that is global GDP is 80 trillion and global wealth is 280 trillion. What is a thousand trillion? Is that a quadrillion? Like in a hundred years, are we going to look back and say, these trillion numbers were kind of small in comparison, and now we have a quadrillion dollars, you know, whatever in debt. Well, if the central bank keeps printing assets, then yeah. <laughs> so the reason I say this because I've I've read a hand, in the last few years I read a handful of books about the depression and the aftermath and in that period in the twenties, thirties, forties, fifties, and every one of those books people are worried about the debt back then, and it was so much smaller than it is today. And so, like in in even Snowball Warren Buffett's biography. He talks about how his dad was so worried about the debt in the country at the time leading to hyperinflation. And of course, it never did. And I just wonder, like people are, have for decades now been trying to figure out what is the point where debt is completely unsustainable, especially in the US. And it seems like there is no like upper bound that people can figure out like this is okay this is it this is the line in the sand the author asked just that he says while they can effectively print money with the help of central banks no one is quite sure what happens when a global superpower like japan reaches a debt to gdp ratio of 224% the us uk and france have all surpassed the 100% level well in terms of japan think about they've been doing this for what 30 years now and they've had deflation they've they've had all this money in low interest rates and still nothing so it's just so hard to sort of wrap your mind around this when you see these numbers, and, and to your point where you, you always say is, okay, debt's on one side, but then there's assets on the other. So it, it's like, how big is the other side of the equation? Where what, what can cover this? They show debt as a percentage of GDP, and they break it down by non-financial corporations, households, financial corporations, and the government. And the good news is that the first three that I mentioned are all going down, households in particular. So that's a good thing to see. But the government has gone way, way, way up. And if there is maybe a I don't want to, you know, whatever, for lack of a better word, a black swan staring us in the face or what could cause the next, you know, the next crisis. I guess this is probably the most, what people would say is the most likely candidate, which makes me think that it is going to be this. This is a gray swan. It's, it's hard to say because when you think about the fact that a lot of the growth in this was probably the Fed holding some of these assets, but the other side of it is it's kind of crazy that the supply in government bonds has gone up so much. That means that there are investors out there buying these. And so in some ways, it's almost like a non-risk, like a growth in non-risks where people want safe government assets. So it's like, I don't know. I look at it from an asset perspective of there are people investing in these bonds on the other side of that liability. But maybe not necessarily because they want to, because there's mandates. Well, yeah, that's that's part of it. But at the end of the day, there there is a there are investors in these funds. And so like, I don't know, it seems like this is like an almost like an anti-risk bubble that we're in where 
more money is going into bonds than to stocks, even though stocks are crushing them over the last 10 years. Well, here's the end of the article, and all of these pieces tend to say the same thing. Quote, this is the post-Lehman legacy. To pull the global economy back from the brink, governments borrowed heavily from the future. That either portends pain ahead through austerity measures or tax increases, or it signals that central bank meddling will become a permanent fixture of 21st century financial markets. Yeah. Well, hasn't that been the case since the Fed was created, I suppose? I mean, of course, they're going to be a part. But the other part of this is, I, I feel like people always say like we're borrowing from the future. and But like, I don't know. I, I have a hard time wrapping my head around this. Like, We're never going to repay all this debt. It's always going to be rolled forward or probably grow a little bit. So I don't know. Is it really screwing the grandkids here? It's growing with assets. Can you also say that we're actually recapturing the past because five-year returns have been incredible, but 20-year returns have just been so-so? Oh, that's a good one. So yeah, that's not bad. Recapturing the past. So we have some nostalgia. That's what we're saying. All right, let's move on. Uh, John Reckenthaler wrote a piece last week problem for active management isn't indexing. And he made the case that less than 17.5% of the world's equities are indexed. And this is pretty complicated. What, what are your take on, what's your take on this? Well, my favorite chart in here was, and he had a chart that's probably a huge chart crime, but I still loved it anyway. And it says professionally managed assets under management in chartered financial analyst candidates. And it shows oh, yes. both of them online. Yeah, huge chart crime, but it shows that as the number of professionally managed assets has grown, the number of CFA candidates has exploded too. Meaning that there's just there's more professional investors in the world, but I think this this is the type of thing that it's easy to argue about but hard to put an answer on because there's so much money that is closet indexed in the world, and I think so much of what's been changing in terms of the indexing revolution, it's just I think a lot of it could just be money coming from closet indexing to indexing. So the biggest change is the fees people are paying. Well, there there but there are like gigantic SMAs that are run for pension funds and things like that, that might not necessarily be counted in the index pile. Right. And those are way probably way bigger than even the fund world in terms of indexing. So to your point, maybe, maybe this number is understated. It's complicated. But when people like have asked me in the past, well, what level of indexing would you be worried? And I think it's hard to put an answer on it because when you look at the active man- actively managed funds, a lot of them are so closely tied to the benchmarks anyway, that for better or for worse, most of the money is kind of indexed already. They might just trade a little more, hold fewer stocks, and charge higher fees. But in all, in most, they're we're going to hug the benchmark regardless. So I think it's no, just it's hard to put an answer even, on it. Even if there is, oh, let's say that there's a a market crash, stocks fall fifty percent, some stocks fall worse, and the ones that are hardest hit are the ones that have done best lately. So say like the Fang stocks, for example. How can we know? That it was actually caused by indexing. Yeah, I guess we could we could look at the flows, but I yeah I, I think it's going to be hard to put it. it it's always going to be hard to place the blame on on any party when something like that happens. All right, survey time. Where did this come from? Oh, Bloomberg. Americans spent eighty point three billion dollars on lotteries in two thousand seventeen, up from fifty seven billion in two thousand six. That's wild. That's a pretty big number. All right, this this is what I so that's a fact, and this is I'm going to call fiction on this one. So they Bankrate.com did a survey. They they surveyed a thousand American adults on August 17th to August 19th. Okay, a thousand people. That's it. And their conclusion was that the lowest income households on the U.S. on average spend $412 a year on lottery tickets. No freaking way. This one was flying around social media quite a bit, and of course it's a 
survey of a thousand people, which is why we're anti-survey podcast. But I mean, the the initial thought on this is, let's say that number was true. A lot of people will say, like, oh, see, the, the lottery is a tax on the poor. I don't know if I necessarily believe this, but I'm going to try to take the other side of this one. Shouldn't the poor be the one that tries to do it this way? They have the, the most to gain from winning the lottery. Doesn't it make sense in some ways for the poor to try to play the lottery? Again, I don't know if I believe this. I'm just throwing it out there. I don't know if it makes sense, but it certainly makes sense that they would outspend the rich people on lottery tickets. Yes, exactly. I, I think I think that's the case. Like for rich people, they'd say, "Why would I need to do this? I have money saved." And and poor people, it's like, "What what do I have to lose?" And- so this is part of the article, and I I do believe this. Quote, lotteries have become an alternative mechanism of social mobility, a way of achieving financial success in an economy that's increasingly bereft of those opportunities. There's an understandable belief that the economy is rigged and your best chance of making it out and getting rich is through the lottery, not through your job or savings. So there's actually some interesting studies on this, on why turning savings into some of, like, something of a lottery game can actually help people. And I'm going to have to find the, the research, but Ashby Monk is a, a really good follow on Twitter. And he, he talked to Ted Seides about this on a podcast a while ago. And trying to get people on the lower income spectrum to save money, they've actually turned it into some sort of a lottery game. And you, if you save a certain amount of money in a bank account, they put those people who put their money in the bank account into a lottery, and it gives you a chance to win. So it's trying to develop good savings habits with also giving people the chance to win bigger because they're saving. That's a great nudge. Right. So yeah, it's a nudge. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to find the, the research on it. But I think it's, 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 it's like if they're going to have that, that mindset and mentality, let's try to turn it into something good. And that's, I'll have to find the name on that one and put it in the show notes. But that's uh, something people are trying to do. All right. So, so let's stick with banks. What do you say? Sure. So someone sent us this. JP Morgan is trying to go after the millennials. And I guess this kind of goes with what we were talking about in a previous show about how they are going for the Robin Hood demographic and, and giving away free trades. But they want to bring rich millennials into their banking sphere. And so they're offering Sapphire credit card users 60,000 points to sign up for a checking account. So they know that millennials love their Sapphire Rewards card, which I use one. You you have one too, correct? I do. And so to sign up for the points, which I think can be worth what $1,200 possibly if you use them in the right way, you have to bring in $75,000 in deposits or investments and keep it at the bank at least three months. So JP Morgan is, is coming for you, Robin Hood. One thing that I thought was really interesting was that it said the Sapphire Reserve card cost the firm hundreds of millions of dollars in rewards expenses. Yes. I, I, we maybe talked about this on the podcast or I put it on Twitter, but these credit card companies are spending billions a year in rewards. And the fact that they're able to make it up or more than make up for it be cut through merchants paying in their fees or through other customers who own the cards not paying and paying interest is pretty astonishing. Like it's You're being subsidized. So if I use my credit card for everything and I just use it for the rewards. So every anything I can put on my credit card I will. Like I never carry cash and I just can't, I'm all I'm doing is building up rewards and paying off my card each month. And it's crazy Ugh. that they'll do that for you, right? Yeah. Sorry. I just got an ugh the giant starting center is out for the season. <sighs> Did you really think they had any hope anyway at this point? <sighs> Giants have started 0 and 2 in 5 of the last 6 seasons. Well, the good thing is that you can now worry about other things because they're out of sight, out of mind, since they're already going to be terrible anyway, right? I mean, it's not like they passed up I, some I, good quarterbacks I wish in the draft or anything. It, no, I wish it worked that way. I, all right. Um, 
back to business. So uh, Jamie Dimon said that he's he used like Amazon Prime as inspiration for this, which I think is genius. It, it makes sense. Yeah, just get everyone under one roof and give them good checking accounts and credit like cards. If they're, and- if they're, if they're, if they're going to do this, why keep your money at whatever Schwab or Fidelity? Like people, you know, people have no loyalty there. So if you're going to get if you're going to get these sort of rewards, and I think somewhere someone said that each point is like two cents or something. Right. So yeah. if you can get if you can get like nine hundred bucks for moving your money over and get free trades, why would you not do that? Right. No, I think. Yeah, they they seem to be, that Sapphire Rewards card was it, it's kind of weird that a credit card could make the news, but the thing was in the news all the time about how so, people loved it and paying for experiences and. So if you have seventy five thousand dollars in deposits or investments, obviously you're doing well, and they're hoping that they're going to make up on this with future services, whether it's mortgages or other banking services or whatever. So I think this is a great idea. I think the funny part about this is the fact that for years, people have been preaching that millennials are going to be shunning the big banks, but they're, they're not. I mean, they're going to... Millennials are going to use these things because you know if they can't, especially the ones that have the ability to, I, I don't think they're going to care who they bank with and stuff as long as they're giving them rewards and money and whatnot. Yeah. Occupy Wall Street went came and went pretty quickly. Yeah. Okay. So Bloomberg had, uh, going back to them, another story called The Incredible Shrinking Hedge Fund. And they showed a bunch of really well-known big name hedge funds that have completely lost a high percentage of their assets. By the way, we used up all of our Bloomberg articles on this podcast alone. Oh, that's right. (laughs) That's true. I can't believe they started charging people for those. I made the joke a couple weeks ago that I go on a media diet every month and it's called you've reached the limit of your articles. Yeah, pretty much. Wah, wah. Okay, so they they show some big name ones here. John Paulson, Bill Ackman, Paul Tudor Jones, David Einhorn. In most cases, these, these hedge funds have lost at least half of their assets from what the peak was. And the peak for a lot of these is not that long ago, 2011, 2015, 2013. So what do you make of this? Because I, I have a hard time reconciling this with the fact that hedge fund assets are still at a record high at $3.2 trillion. So Wait, one does not negate the other. What this is showing is some of the some of the managers that did particularly well in, in 08, I think. Okay. And they've all struggled. Which makes so, I mean, did anyone come out of two thousand eight unscathed? Like the people who nailed it completely, made a ton of money and have turned it around. Is there are there any examples of that where someone was able to do you know, ride both waves? It seems well, like it's, it seems it's, like none of these people really did. Hard that you make one of the greatest trades of all time and then you continue to have to enjoy success. It just lightning does not usually strike twice. I mean, obviously it was impossible to turn on the, the fees, but imagine if Paulson would have just done a mic drop in two thousand eight and said I'm out. Greatest trade ever. See you later. I made seven billion dollars or whatever it is. Wouldn't that be kind of intriguing? Yes, but nobody leaves the table after a huge win. That's true. I mean, it is kind of crazy to see some of these big names like this and just completely their assets are just shriveling. So you had a good stat about the industry assets still being at all-time highs. So yeah, it's th- I, I found this just to look it up. So there's $3.2 trillion as, at the end of 2017, which is the highest ever. But 88% of the, the gains between 2017 and 2018 were from just market growth. Only 12% was from inflows. So in a lot of ways... 
hedge funds are kind of like the actively fund management industry where the inflows are not really helping, but there's so much in assets that as long as markets are going up, they're being propped up in, in some ways. So it's kind of like it, it'll be a double whammy when we do see a sustained downturn that you'll see assets shrink and maybe outflows potentially. And that could be where the problem is. One of the interesting charts in here was it shows that the number of new hedge funds has absolutely plummeted. And I wonder if ETFs have anything to do with this. So a lot of what used to look like alpha can now be explained as beta. And a lot of these products are now basically free. Either that or they've all decided instead of opening a hedge fund, everyone's going to open a private equity fund. I, yeah. I think that that's possible. All right. So there was an SEC complaint published this week. And the gist of it was that these... Did you actually um, read this thing? Because you, you posted in here an actual like legislative document. Yeah, I did go through a lot of the stuff and my jaw was on the ground. So these representatives for retail customers held UWTI, which I believe was an triple levered long oil fund. And they held them for more than 400 days. Oh my gosh. And it wasn't a, it wasn't a, a large amount of these people's portfolios. It was three or four percent, but still. And it said that the the guy purchases for his own account and for his family and friends' account. So he had no idea how this works. So sometimes, like when we see, when we see articles about the triple levered ETF, it's like, all right, we get it. Like, who doesn't know at this point? But apparently, it's people still need to be reminded. That's pretty bad. And those, yeah, those ones. Without going into the specifics, they just holding those on an overnight basis even can just like crush you from the rebalancing and volatility. And, and then it was like some of the things that he said was he was like bullish on an oil rebound. <laughs> like what? So you had a you had another piece in here about another ETF, Innovators IBD Breakout Opportunities ETF, and you kind of flagged. Did you, did someone send this to you trying to sell it to you, or how did you find this one? No, I just saw. I don't know, maybe ETF.com tweeted it, or Baltrunas, or somebody tweeted it. So I thought this was interesting. It's basically trying to quantify technical analysis, and when stocks are going down, of course, there's not as many breakouts, and then the fund can hold 50% of the assets in cash. So I found this intriguing, so I wanted to look into it a little bit further. Hey, can we do a and, real quick? Michael explains technical analysis to Ben. Give me, give me oh, the, we're break, going to, the breakout. Yeah, no, we're going to school. Okay. So the idea of resistance is the fact that stop laughing. <laughs> I'm just picturing it's you the, put, I'm just picturing you writing this in your trading journal 5 years ago, but go ahead. You know what? I will draw a picture and we'll put this in the show notes. The idea of resistance is the fact that every time a stock gets to a certain level, the sellers come and they overwhelm the the buyers. That's called resistance. And the more times a stock bounces up against that resistance level, the it theoretically the likelier that sellers are going to give way to new buyers and you know, it's going to continue to go up. So the reason why I like this was because it eliminates, it mitigates the human biases involved with with chasing a breakout and selling on a retest like I did all the time. Okay, so because resistance has to develop over time, I was very surprised to see that six of the top 10 holdings in this fund or 20% of the fund are in recent IPOs. And if you just look at these charts, there's no resistance because these stocks are brand new. So right. I love the idea of quantifying technical analysis. I'm really interested to see how this does going forward. I just was surprised by its makeup. And the, the thing that I brought up to you was, I wonder how how much liability these ETFs have to follow the own rules that they state. Like you, You're basically pointing out that 
they're not really following what's in their prospectus. No, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that if they had some language or if they put into the algorithm that these stocks have to be, I don't know, two years old, that would certainly change things. True. Or and, and the other point is, like, it's great to have a rules-based framework, but you have to understand that there could be unintended consequences from the rules you create that you may not realize. Right. The output is only as good as the input. So let's move on to some listener questions. What do you say? Okay. Is investing in foreign assets a good hedge if you think a U.S. recession is coming in the next couple of years as Ray Dalio does? Bring this full circle here. All right. Well, I guess it would depend on where you're investing. So obviously dollars play play into this. So my first, my knee-jerk reaction was to say no, because especially today where, where it's such a global economy. You would think that if the U.S. goes into a recession or just has a bear market without a recession, that likely it would be likely that international stocks would not do so great. So I went back and I looked at the MSCI All Country World Index, XUS, and found that there was 112 times since 1970 that the S&P 500 was, was down year over year, 112 times. And in 86 of those times, international stocks also fell. So 75% of the time when US stocks were down in a 12-month period, international stocks were also down, which makes sense. So sure, international stocks were up 25% of the time when US stocks fell, but I would certainly not say that international stocks are a good bet when US stocks are falling. If you want something that's likely to go up when US stocks are going to go down, I would probably look to bonds. And especially if, since the US is 50% of the global market cap, it's, it's very likely that international could probably do worse too. And so, yeah, so I would, and a lot of people will chalk it up to, oh, diversification doesn't work, but diversification is not supposed to save you from those times. By the way, let me, before I get actually, I'm, I understand that bonds don't have to go up. I'm just saying that right. they have a higher likelihood of going up when stocks go down than international stocks. Right. And when risk assets fall, the majority of the time they, they fall together. And so that's, that'll happen. Okay. Second question. How would you advise someone on investing when they receive a lump sum payment? Is it smart to dollar cost average and purchase on a monthly schedule or something like a three or six month period or just pull the trigger and buy it once? These investments would be diversified, large, mid, small, US, some bonds, blah, blah, blah. All right. Well, I guess it depends on where the money is coming from. If it's coming from like a bonus at work, uh, that's one thing. If it's coming from you know, uh, an inheritance and it's maybe a little bit more emotional, that's probably a different, a different topic altogether. But in the case where it looks like it is coming from work and the person is in a diversified portfolio of different asset classes, that I would say putting putting it in all at once is the correct mathematical answer, and even probably the correct answer. Period. Because, like I said, if you're in in stocks and bonds, then just get it over with. Now, if you are only in stocks, and even though we know that stocks go up most of the time, so opportunity cost would dictate that lump sum is the right way to go. Emotionally, that might not be the best because you're probably just you know nervous that, of course, I invest now and, and the market top. So if you have to spread it out over four quarters or eight quarters or whatever it is, I would say the most important thing is to make sure that you have written down what your plan of action is going to be. If you don't commit it to paper, it's probably not going to happen. Agree. I looked at this. I wrote about this earlier this year and Vanguard did some research on it. They, they looked at the performance of a 60-40 stock bond portfolio in the US, UK, and Australia. And they looked at a lump sum immediate investment versus investing it in 12 monthly purchases over over the course of a year. And lump sum beat dollar cost averaging two-thirds of the time, which makes sense when you think about the fact that markets are basically up two-thirds of the time. So yeah, the probability is you'll probably do better lump sum. The problem is everyone assumes they're going to put a lump sum in and then markets are going to get crushed. So it really depends on what's going to minimize your regret. But I don't think there is a right or wrong answer here because it, it really depends on what you can force yourself to stick with. 
All right, I think this is a pretty good one. Illinois Toolworks is considered a blue chip company that has 54 years of consecutive dividend growth. About a month ago, the company declared a $1 dividend up from 78 cents last year, 28% growth. It's still trading around its 52-week low. And if dividends signify the future cash flows and optimism of the company's future, why is there such a disconnect between what management sees as a bright future and what Wall Street sees? Okay, this is this is an interesting one uh, because a lot of it, like some people look at the fact that they're paying a lot in dividends and assuming they have nothing else to invest in. And that means they're not investing in the future of the company. So maybe that's why people, I, I know nothing specifically about this company, but I could I can see looking at the other side of this listener's question and thinking, they, they've really run out of things to invest in, so they're giving the money back to the shareholders. Well, I don't know that dividends necessarily signify future cash flows and optimism of the company's future, because I guess you would have to look at the dividend payout ratio. So maybe they raise their dividends by 28%, but what if they're only paying out 50% of the free cash flow into dividends? You know, That would be a much different story than a company that pays out, say, 80% of it. So I think that it's probably case-specific, but I don't think that, that dividends necessarily reflect management's optimism or pessimism about future opportunities. Especially with a company that's had 54 years of consecutive dividend growth. Now, if I was a pundit on TV right now, I would say, hey, this company is paying you to wait for that growth to come in. So <laughs> if, if you think that, I don't know what the, the yield is on Stop. this stock. You, you nailed it. You nailed I, it. All right. That, that, well, go out on top. Hold on. But he has one more, one more bonus question. There's a book called Beating the Dow, where the author makes a case that to buy stocks in the Dow with the highest dividends. Uh, bu- 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 is this a viable trading strategy if you're interested in long-term growth? All right, so I think there was something similar called Dogs of the Dow, and this is really just value and drag and probably not the best way to capture value stocks. So this is not something that I would go for, but people love dividends, and if this keeps you invested and it's you know personal preference, even if it's not maybe uh, the most tax-efficient strategy, I, you know, I don't have any major issues with this. I have a hard time offering the fact that this, this is called a fun question for a bonus, but <laughs> I, I guess for us. Okay, one more. This is, this is going back to you for your trading strategies. I've recently instituted a 15% stop loss rule in my portfolios, and I'm sure glad I did. What do you think of stop loss orders in general? Well, this depends on what type of stocks you're trading. You know, if you're just index asset allocation, I would say that's probably a pretty bad idea. There's better ways to mitigate risk. Yep. But if you're trading, especially high beta stocks, then I think that you need some sort of risk management. And I, I don't think that stop orders are a bad way to approach that. There's obviously different type of stop orders, market limit, et cetera. And you got to be careful with what you're doing, especially if like some of the ETFs that can get triggered during a flash crash type of thing. The one, the one thing that it can do is, like you said, it, it defines your risk that you're willing to take. And so, <laughs> unless you cancel it, right? Yeah, there's. I mean, there's. Yeah, there's. There's nothing that says you have to follow it to the law, but whatever the number is, if that's what you define your risk as, and you're okay with being stopped out and then seeing a stock go up, then I guess whatever works for you. But I think you have to understand that there are. So, so let's say the fifteen percent is your going back to your technical analysis. That's your resistance. If you set it at the wrong point and the stock bounces, then you're going to feel like an idiot. I would always set my stops at. You know, some random thirty-seven cents below where I hope to see support. But you gotta, if you're trading, you gotta give yourself an out. You have to know where you're wrong. So I am fully supportive of of uh, having an exit plan before you go before you go into something. All right, I'm gonna start off recommendations this week. We went straight from Ozark into Jack Ryan on Amazon, and I thought it was great. Like when that first came out, I, I saw that John Krasinski was in it, and it looked like a cool CIA one. Like it totally lived up to my expectations. Exactly what I want from a CIA show. It also kind of got me thinking. Like with Ozark and that show, I mean, it's basically like a 
really long movie, right? Those shows, yeah. they yeah. don't even, they're not like shows anymore, which is great. And, and obviously that doesn't work every time. Like we watched Sharp Objects this fall and, or this summer. And like that was one that probably could have been a movie. It didn't need to be eight episodes. It was good acting and such, but I don't think it needed to be that long. But these ones are made better, I think, by the fact that they're, they're longer. And there was Jack Ryan, I thought was really good. So this morning on Good Morning America, which my wife likes to put on in the morning, I saw something for IMAX teaming up with like Netflix and Amazon Prime to bring their movies to the big screen, oh. I think. Huh, okay. I don't really know why you would pay to go if you... Although so I guess if you don't experience. have... Experience? No, okay, wait. You know what? If you don't have a Netflix or Amazon Prime membership, maybe that would make sense. True. Just to see those ones. That makes sense. So my other one here, let's see. The North Star podcast with, with David Peril was really good. With He had Austin Allred on this week who formed the Lambda School. And I'd heard of this before, but never really did a deep dive. And the way that this school works is they train you in like six months to be a programmer or and in computer science and get you a job as like a software engineer. And you don't pay anything for tuition. And at the what they do is... They instead, once you get a job making $50,000 a year or more, they take 17% of your salary for the first two years. And that's how you pay back in tuition. And it's capped at like $30,000, I think. So unless, yeah, you, great. unless you get this a job and make some money, which going back to our talk last week about college and what could upend it, like this is great because this is like a trade. They're, they're literally teaching people how to do a job and they're trying to help them get placed and get a job. And so this, I thought was, I'd never really heard much about it. So I thought this was amazing. So they're swapping free education for equity in their future earnings, which is, right, which is probably great. A, win-win, a win-win for both sides. It's, and and it's, they said a lot of the people are, are coming back from having another job and not being happy and then going back to school. And it's, I think it's a great program. One more thing before we get to our Animal Spirits book club this month. So when you have kids, I've found that you need to have like a really high tolerance for repetition because they do. So my daughter will watch the same movie dozens and dozens of time and listen to the same song and so i have to get used to these and a lot of them i don't like but she started watching the greatest showman in the past couple of weeks with hugh jackman and michelle williams i don't know if it's like a musical of pt barnum and they turned it into a movie and actually the soundtrack is not that bad and so i'm saying if you're a parent and don't want to get into too many annoying songs the greatest showman is actually not not terrible okay so you and i had a book club last week kind of when we both read lake success by Gary, how do you pronounce his last name? Steingart. Okay, let's hear your take on this one. I think we both read it last week. So it's obviously a, a take on modern society, which to me wasn't the focal point because I think we already know what's going on with the haves and the have-nots. So, I mean, and that was de- definitely a big part of the book, but I, I saw it from more the point of view of just people are not all good or bad and people are complicated. The main character, uh, is Bobby his name? I don't know why I'm drawing a blank. He was a hedge fund manager. And his wife is complicated and the whole... Th- I mean, I loved it. I thought it was really, really great. He's definitely a good storyteller. And it, it's kind of hard because none of the characters in the book had many redeeming qualities, I thought. So it was... I, I think it was kind of hard to... That's kind of hard to pull off to make you really want to get into the book. So I liked it. I, I thought it was 90% of a good book. I think a lot of times... With a novel, you can have such good buildup, and then the ending kind of falls flat, and I thought that happened here. But I still liked it, and I'll probably go read some of his other books now that I've, I've read it. But I liked it. It was, if you want to like hate on hedge fund people, it's probably a good one for people who are on that side of the aisle. But yeah. it, it was, uh, I enjoyed it. No, what I thought, I thought is, is probably as high a compliment as you could pay to a novelist. It seemed like a short story, even though it was 300 something pages. It, it felt like a very quick read to me. 
Yeah, I, I flew through it pretty quick too. All right, you got any other ones? I saw Upgrade, which did you recommend that? I don't think so. What's that one? Okay. I do highly recommend this one. It was thematically very similar to Ex Machina. And the actor, the main actor who I've seen in other movies. Is this on Netflix or at the theater? I'm going to confess. I saw it on Reddit. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So this is like a bootleg copy? (laughs) No. Well, yes, I I stole it, but it was was good quality. I didn't know you could watch movies on Reddit. So the main guy, his name is Logan Marshall Green, and he's sort of like a poor man's Tom Hardy. Okay. Worth seeing? If anyone's listening, when it comes out on Apple iTunes, I will pay for it to to redeem myself. Uh, but yes, it was very good. It was Animal very good. Spirits is now being investigated by the SEC. <laughs> okay. Somebody on Twitter, at FBG Chase, posts a lot of really good stats about football. And this is sort of wild. Yesterday, the NFL had an average passer rating of 105.1. Aaron Rodgers' career passer rating is 103.9. So obviously, the rules have changed and are making the game a lot different. And maybe you're seeing that pan out and... Fitzmagic and some of the other stuff going on around the league, but only this he's a good follow. If only this could help the Giants. Too soon. Okay. All right. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Feel free to email us at animalspiritspod at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.